Can anybody tell me what book we're studying? We're studying the book of Revelation. You see if I can figure which button to press here. Can you all hear me better? Okay. Praise the Lord for technology. Sometimes it is good to have. Well, we are in the book of Revelation. We should not forget that uh, this is not just uh, the book of Revelation, which we will finish today, Lord willing, but this is the end of the Bible. We're going to be covering today the last chapters that we will cover in this uh, series that we started maybe a couple of years ago. We went through the book of Acts, and as we went through the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, we looked at the different letters that were written to them as their, as, uh, in their historical context to help us understand what the books of the Bible were talking about. And the book of Revelation is the last book written in the Bible, both chronologically and it's also the last one in order in the books of the Bible. And there's some significance to that, and there's significance to the last chapters of that book as well. If you remember, we uh, mentioned that the main purpose of the book of Revelation was to reveal God for who he is, reveal the Lord Jesus for who he is, but in particular reveal his attitude towards sin, how he feels about sin, and what he will do about sin. And before we continue with that theme in the book of Revelation, turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1. It might surprise you as you try to think about what is the greatest sin that, that can be sinned, what's, what's the thing that God hates the most, what's perhaps the root of all other sins. And you might think of all kinds of uh, terrible things people have done to each other over the ages, and that would actually miss the mark. That would miss the mark. The book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. We'll skip to verse 25. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The greatest sin of man, and the one that is the root of all other sin, is the failure to worship God. God who made us and is in the business of revealing himself to us, have made us in the purpose of knowing him and worshiping him, which means coming to know him as he is entering into the relationship with him which he created us for. That's our purpose. When we refuse that purpose, 
and say no to God, we're not going to worship you, in particular worshiping and appreciating and trying to be satisfied with other things, that is the greatest sin of man. And we'll see that as we turn to the book of Revelation. Turn to the book of Revelation. We will continue where we stopped last time. Last time we stopped in chapter 11. We will continue in chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Let's start in verse 7. I have to pick. We're, we're going to cover about nine chapters today. And you'll have to excuse me as I jump around. And maybe there are certain verses in Revelation you've been wondering about. And I may not touch on them today because we do have to cover nine chapters in a short amount of time. And again, the purpose of these studies we've been going through is really to whet your appetite for the Word of God with the hope that you will on your own time investigate more and read more and come to understand better the Word of God. So I, I will be picking and choosing verses as we advance through the next nine chapters. So chapter 12 and verse 7. And war broke out in heaven... Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was there a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast with him. Going down to verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. People tend to lean to one extreme or another when considering the devil. It's either that the devil doesn't exist, and so we don't have to worry about him at all, or it's the devil made me do it, and therefore I'm not responsible for what I've done. Well, both are wrong. Uh, both views are wrong. First of all, the devil does exist and has a great impact on mankind. It, it says in the Bible that he is the ruler of the darkness of this world. It says here that he deceives the whole world. He, he deceives us. Uh, if, if you want to start, you can go to the book of Genesis and the fall of mankind. The mankind was created to have a relationship with God and there he was having a relationship with God and Satan was the one who came down and and deceived mankind away from that, saying to him, instead of, of uh, letting man continue in his relationship with God, he caused man to turn away from God, convincing man that God didn't have the best for him in store, and instead man could do better by looking out for his own interest. The words Satan said to Adam and Eve were this, God knows in the day you will eat of the fruits, you will become like God yourself. And that's the way mankind tried to live since then. We tried to live as if regards ourselves. We, we can make our own choices. We can do our own things in this world instead of worshiping God and giving God the credit as being God and us being his creatures. He deceives the whole world. We're still under that uh, wave of deceit. The other extreme is also wrong. The Bible is very clear that man is responsible for his choices. Man is responsible for his choices. Adam and Eve were held responsible for their choice of believing the devil Instead of, instead of believing mankind. And the same is today. You can, can never excuse your sin by what the devil does. But that doesn't take away from the fact that the devil has a great impact on us today and, and leads us into sin. Leads us into sin. Uh, second, uh, 
we see here that there is a, a particular period of time which we're studying here in the book of Revelation. It's a, it's a seven-year period in which a lot of things will happen on the earth. And this is one of the things that happened. It, it mentioned in verse 7 that the war broke down in heaven, broke out in heaven, that cast the dragon down. And in verse 12 it says, Woe to you, earth, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. The devil had two purposes. It really, it really has one purpose. You read in the scriptures. His purpose is to replace God in the center of heaven or center of the universe and be worshipped instead of God. So he accomplished the first goal with mankind. The first goal was really to turn mankind away from worshipping God in which the devil has been largely successful. His second goal, which we will see him accomplishing here, is to turn mankind to worship Satan. And we will see Satan will be largely successful in that as well. Mankind will turn and worship Satan, worship the devil. And let's see how he accomplishes that. So moving on to chapter 13 and picking up in verse 4. Now, uh, just, just as a reminder, the great sin of mankind isn't so much worshipping the devil. It's really not worshipping God. But the devil's purpose is that he himself will be worshipped. Uh, chapter 13, verse 4. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The beast. The book of Revelation has a lot of symbols in it, and it, it causes people to... Uh, often uh, have difficulties in understanding the passages. I know I was wrestling as I was uh, reading and rereading the book of Revelation over the past few months uh, preparing for this uh, teaching opportunity. I, I had to wrestle with a lot of the symbols. It's very clear that this particular beast, there are two, two beasts in the books of Revelation, book of Revelation. The first is a beast that comes out of the sea. It's this one. It represents a man named in the, uh, labeled in the scripture as the Antichrist. There's going to be another beast that will come later, a beast that comes out of the earth, and that is uh, a man that will be called the false prophet. The Antichrist. This represents the Antichrist. A lot of times I hear the word Antichrist and I'm saying to myself, well, it means because he's going to be against Christ. He's going to be fighting against him. Well, there's a truth that he is against Christ, but really a better description of him is he stands in the place of Christ. He tries to replace him. Satan, a lot of time, is not original in his plans. He wants to be worshipped. And his copy is often the designs of God. God sent Christ to the world that we might know God through Christ and that we might worship God through Christ. The Satan sends the Antichrist to the world to reveal to the world what Satan is like and so that Satan will be worshipped through the Antichrist. And the Antichrist will reveal Satan. He will be this great man. He is described here in uh, verse 4 as being worshipped by the world, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? He will be 
uh, so charismatic, so beautiful, so smart, that people will just adore him. And this is the way that Satan was. He's described in the scripture as uh, the beautiful angel that was in the uh, garden of God that was perfect. Certainly, Satan was the greatest created being that ever was created. He has more beauty, wisdom, than probably, probably all of humanity put together. And so it's no wonder when Satan raises up a man, and really uh, this man in some sense is an incarnation of Satan, he really displays what Satan is like, the whole world will fall and worship him. This man will be so much greater than any man that ever walked on the earth. And yet... I think about this as the Antichrist, the world worshipping the Antichrist. The world did not worship Christ when Christ came. And yet Christ was far greater than the Antichrist. Christ says this, he says, uh, you do not believe, I come in my Father's name and you do not believe me. Another will come in his own name, him you will believe. The Antichrist will come in his own name, glorifying himself. Jesus did not glorify himself on the earth. He came here with a different purpose. I think of, of greatness. A lot of time, uh, we want to be great, and we value greatness as our power over other people. The disciples fell into the same trap, if you remember, when Jesus was really heading to Jerusalem on the way to the cross to suffer. They had in their mind another thought. They were thinking, well, Jesus is going to take the seat in Jerusalem. He's going to rule over uh, the Israel, Jerusalem, Israel, and the world. And they wanted to have some of that power. And so that's when they started contending, contending for it. That's when uh, James and John or, or their mother went up to Jesus and said, give me whatever I ask from you. And she wanted them to be able to sit on his two sides. And the other disciples got really upset with them and like, you know, what are you guys doing trying to get ahead over us? And Jesus stops them all and says this. He said, you know, in this world, People consider greatness by ruling over others. The kings of the Gentiles rule over them. Let it not be so among you. It says, the greatest of you, let him be your servant. And he who will be first, let him be your slave. And he used himself as an example. For even the Son of Man did not come to the world to, be, uh, to receive glory from the world or to be served by others, but to serve. And that's what he was going to Jerusalem at the time with the mind of how to serve humanity by, by dying for them. Talking about a cause for worship, we spent about an hour worshiping here this morning. And what did we worship? We worship the fact that the God of heaven, who made heaven and earth, and deserves all worship and all glory of man, condescended and became a man. And as a man, he condescended himself and took his place at the cross and died at the cross for our sins. That's what we worship. We worship his love, his grace, his mercy, those qualities that are really worthy of worshiping. Whereas the Antichrist is beautiful, but the Bible says, um, I forget exactly the verse. Let's see if I, if I have it here. It says this, Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. And that's the Antichrist. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. There wasn't something there really worth worshiping. It's empty. He's empty. He's a shy. In fact, he deceives the world. I'm sure he will have promises to the world. He'll say, I, let me be in charge, and you know, you'll see peace as you've never known peace. You'll have plenty food on every table. Right now, a lot of people in the world will, someone who will make promises like that will be able to rule the world because the world is feeling the lack of food right now. And yet he'll deceive the world. 
is not going to give them what they want. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Christ is the one who should be worshipped. Moving on to verse 11 in chapter 13. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. This is the, the other beast. I, I mentioned how Satan is not original in his plan of getting mankind to worship him and how he's copying the plan of God. And the, the false prophet in that view represents the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in this world to cause us to appreciate Christ for who he is. Jesus himself said it. He will come, I will send you the helper, and he will remind you, and he will point you to me. You, you will worship me because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be the one that induces us to appreciate Christ for who he is. Well, the false prophet, I think, I think Satan was smart enough to realize that if the Antichrist is trying to get everybody to worship him, people will start you know, seeing through the disguise. So he gets somebody else to rise up and to try to get, point the world to worship the Antichrist, to try to show the world how wonderful the Antichrist is. And it says he will be very effective. He will be able to do miraculous signs. People today uh, that, that hear this gloom and doom message that I'm preaching here today will say often that when I see these things happening, then I will believe. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says when the Antichrist comes, the false prophet, there'll be so many supportive signs that he really is the one you should fall and worship that you will end up doing that. There's a good verse about it in Second Thessalonians 2. I'll just read it. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12. The coming of the lawless one, here the Antichrist is described as the lawless one, which is a good description for him, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So this passage says not only will uh, the Antichrist or the false prophet be doing signs, miracles, which, which are designed by Satan to deceive mankind, but God will allow people, will support the lie uh, in that helping people to believe the lie that Satan is going to send them. And the reason for it is it's a judgment. This is a judgment of God against people who heard the truth but refused to receive the love of the truth. They didn't want the truth. 
And it says specifically they had pleasure in unrighteousness. They wanted to continue to live a life that they knew God did not want them to live. That's why they refused to believe in God or refused to receive Christ. And it's a judgment of God. These miracles that the false prophet is doing that will, will cause people to believe the lie, it's a judgment against those who refused to believe the truth when they had an opportunity to do so. Okay, chapter 14. Chapter 14 and verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. We see here three angels coming with a final warning for mankind. It's, uh, the book of Revelation is really full of warnings, warning people to turn away from their sins. God doesn't want people to go to hell. He wants people to be saved. And these angels are, are one of the tools he's using here to warn people from making a mistake. The first angel, it says, comes with the everlasting gospel. What's the everlasting gospel? Well, here it says the everlasting gospel is to worship God. To worship God. The good news of Christ, praise God, that Christ died for my sins and prevented me from going to heaven. But I wasn't, Jesus didn't die so that I won't go to hell. Jesus died so that I will get to worship God. That's why he died. That's, that's the essence of the good news. That's the good part of the good news, is I will get to go to heaven for eternity and worship God and get to know him for who he is. And it's really, the angel is calling on mankind saying, this is what you should be doing. You should worship God. You have an opportunity, take it. Come to God. Repent of your sins. Turn to God and, and get to worship him. The, the second angel is giving them uh, a part of, of the bad news for them, but really to help them in their decision. It says, uh, Babylon is fallen, fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon. Babylon is a name that appears many times in the scriptures. And a lot of people try to find out you know, what this Babylon is going to be because today there is no Babylon. The Babylon of old lies in ruins. Some people believe it will be rebuilt and, and be a great city again. Uh, but Babylon really has uh, a symbolic uh, value or meaning in the scriptures. If you think of Babylon... You, you can go back to the beginning when Babylon was created. And Babylon was created by men 
after the flood, the flood came, God saved a few people through the flood, and men began to multiply again over the earth and spread over the earth. And God told them, you know, spread over the earth, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was their meaning. Well, people got to a particular spot on the earth. It was, uh, I think it says the plain of Shina, and they decided that they had a better plan. Instead of spreading and filling the earth and doing what God told us to do, let's build the great city so that everybody can live it instead of scattering and, and filling the earth. I mean, they were completely, exactly direct opposed to God's purpose for them. And in that city, they, they realized we need something to, to keep people happy and satisfied here so they're not going to you know, move over the earth and fill the earth and see the wonders that God created. I mean, there were Yosemites that are waiting to be discovered and such beauty of the nature and ways of knowing God that God created, but they're trying to keep people from knowing God. And so they built a great tower to keep people together, to make a name for themselves. And that's a good description of, of the meaning of Babylon in the scripture. It's really mankind's effort or a system to try to, to keep man satisfied without God. It's really, it's, it's a world system. It's a way of trying to be happy without God in your life. And what God is saying is he's going to destroy that. He's going to take away this method that we've created, which doesn't work so well anyways, but he's going to take it away from us so that there will be nothing left but God to worship God. It's destroyed. It's taken away. Leave it. Don't try to be happy with what the world is offering you because even that, that uh, false happiness, that uh, not complete and, and temporary happiness, will be taken away from you. You'll have nothing. You'll have nothing without God. The, the third angel is a warning of what's going to happen to them if they don't repent. He says, uh, God is ready to judge. Right? God is, is ready to put down his judgment. And those who decide to worship the Antichrist and Satan through the Antichrist will share in the judgment of the Antichrist and Satan. They will, they will get the same rewards the Antichrist and Satan is getting, which is eternal, eternal suffering for those things. That's where they're going. You better turn now. You better turn now and return to God. Chapter 15 and verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Worship of God. We, we mentioned again that the purpose of the book is to reveal what God is like for the purpose that we will truly worship him. And this is, uh, I could be wrong, but I think this is the last uh, specific call to worship God. And at this time, it's, it's to worship God for his judgment of the earth, his fair dealing with the sin of mankind. And I know for me, it can be difficult sometimes when I think about God's justice and wrath against sin to worship, worship him for that quality. Now, it's not because he shouldn't be. It's the same problem that uh, 
a person who is, convict, uh, who is charged with a crime that's called in front of a court of law, say I, I, uh, I violated some law, I was driving 100 miles an hour in a 25 miles per hour uh, speed limit zone, and I have to stand before a judge, and Tom tells me, boy, this is a great judge. You know, he is, you know, he is right on. He knows exactly what people did. He gives them exactly what they deserve because the law they broke. You know, he really gives them exactly what the rule, the law says they should get. I may not be very comfortable listening to that description of how good that judge is because it works against me because I've committed a crime and I'm going to have to pay for that crime. And because that judge is so good and perfect, there's no escape for me. Well, in the same way, people here, sinful creatures, sometimes have a hard time appreciating the justice and the righteousness and holiness of God because it works against us because of our, because of our sins. But for those in heaven, those third-party spectators, <laughs> to them it's beautiful seeing how God perfectly and righteously judges the earth. If you were in a situation that you know, I was uh, driving on your street and you had your little kids playing on your front yard and you saw me driving 100 miles an hour and you were sitting in that court of law, you would want to see the judge pass a righteous judgment on what I did. And it's in the same way. Those, those in the universe that really see what's happening, they realize it would be wrong for God to not give people exactly what they deserve because of their sins. The same way God will be worshipped. God will be worshipped for his judgments. We will see uh, the, there were uh, seven angels that were given balls. And we will see that this, this will be the first set of judgments that we're going to see. There's, still, there's at least two judgments left, two main types of judgments. The first one will be what's called the seven bowl judgments. Let's turn to that in chapter 16. Chapter 16, we'll start at verse 2. So the first, that is the first angel, went and pulled out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome soul came upon the earth, who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel pulled out his bowl on the, on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel pulled out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is the just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Then the fourth angel put out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with the great heat, and they blasphemed in the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel put out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. We'll stop there. That's the first five plagues. We'll summarize later the, the sixth and the seventh plague. There's two things I, I find notable here. The first one is these judgments are perfect. 
the perfect of what people deserve. We see that especially in verse 5. I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is the just do. There will be such a bloodbath in those days against the saints. We saw it a little bit in the previous chapters, talking about the Antichrist and the false prophet, trying to get people to worship the Antichrist, and those who would not worship the Antichrist will be put to death. There will be probably more people killed in those seven years, more believers killed than have been in the history of mankind. There will be a bloodbath. Everybody will see it. Everybody there that's worshipping the beast and agreed with what happened, with what was being done to these people as they were being murdered, will now have blood to drink. That's literally the case. I, I, I haven't really checked with our medical people what happens to you when you drink blood, but people have historically uh, drunk blood for various reasons, not probably because that was their only option. They may have had other reasons to do so, but that's all people will have to drink in those days. But it's a righteous judgment because they agreed in the shedding of blood of so many people, in the death of people. I'm wondering, and I know that's God's purpose of reminding them of their guilt. What they're suffering now is going to be the result of their guilt. The other thing we notice here is God is still trying to get mankind to repent and be saved, which is really amazing to me. He gives them really warning after warning here. And you see it most clearly in the fourth and fifth book because it says specifically uh, that in the end of verse 9, they did not repent and give him glory. Verse 11, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds, meaning God was still trying to get them to repent. And, and you see the type of judgment that God has here and how they're designed for that. First of all, you think about pain. Well, what is pain? Well, pain is something that God has designed in his making of me. He gave me the ability of feeling pain to tell me when there's something wrong about my body. If, uh, if say, I laid my hand on a surface and it was boiling hot and it was doing terrible damage to my hand and I had no ability of sensing pain, I would be in big trouble. I wouldn't make it very long in this world. I, I have a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter and, and she does some things that are not very smart. She likes... Uh, Closing, closing a drawers of the dresser of, of, of her sister. And that drawer has, unfortunately, a mechanism that it kind of shuts itself. You bring it down, and then the last inch, it has kind of a design that the drawer actually goes a little bit up down. And so gravity slams that drawer down. And my, my poor daughter has got, you know, more than once, her little fingers caught in that drawer, in that massive drawer. And that hurts, and she cries. And it's, it, the pain was put there by God to teach her that certain things will hurt her and to help us stay away from those things. And in the same way, God is now using this ability he gave us of sensing pain to make mankind realize that he is in trouble, he is in error, as terrible as the judgments of God upon mankind here. They're just of a warning nature. They're trying to save mankind from a worse fate that awaits it if it continues in his rebellion against God. They're going to go to hell. They're going to be for an eternity without God, which is far worse than some temporary experience of pain. And that's why God is doing this at this particular time. So pain, we see scorching through the sun. It scorches people. They're feeling burning. Uh, that remind people of anything? The lake of fire? Uh, they're, they're going to experience darkness. There's going to be darkness poured over the earth. Jesus calls hell 
I don't know if it's described anywhere else, but Jesus, one of Jesus' big expressions of hell is a place of the outer darkness. The outer darkness. You're not going to see any light in hell. You're not going to have any of these sensations, things that we can see and experience here, things that are really of God. You're not going to have that. So God is, is using all these things to give them really a prelude to what hell will be like if they don't turn from their sins. He's trying to turn them from their sins. And yet we see that they don't repent. And uh, I used this illustration last time. We see God is pressing harder and harder and harder. First there was the judgment of the seals when, when Jesus was removing the seals from, from the uh, scroll that re- was going to reveal the wrath of God and judgment f- were falling on the earth. In that case, man was really woken up. You really see you know, the wrath of God has come. People are awakened by it. And the following chapters, we see many, many people got saved during this period of time. And then you have the trumpet judgments. And then you don't really see much of a response. It just says this, people would not repent of their sins. Well, this time it's even worse. The judgments have gotten worse. And what does it say? They didn't repent of their sins. And what? They blasphemed the name of God. And uh, so the illustration, I'm sorry, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't quite get to it. The illustration is treading the wrath of, of the winepress of the wrath of God. It's what Jesus is doing at this time. We'll see him in a moment. But he's doing all this. He's treading the winepress of the wrath of God. He's trying to squeeze the grapes, try to get as much juice as possible and that is the juice is repentance of people, getting people to turn from their sins and be saved. And just like in a wine press, you press harder and harder and harder. And you get less and less and less. That's what's happening with humanity. He's pressing harder and harder and harder. And we see here he's getting less and less, less and less response from mankind, any willing to repentance. It's just gone. And you know what you do with the leftovers of the wine press after you've got all the juice out? That part you just discard. That's the part that, if you would, goes to the fire. And that's what's going to happen with these people. Now we're going to see the judgment of God, the real destruction of God. Okay, the sixth seal, sixth seal, actually it talks about the drying of the Euphrates, which opens the way from, for the armies of the kings of the east to come and attack God, to come to, to fight against God in Jerusalem, or attack Jerusalem, where, where God is going to come and meet mankind. Something else happens then. There's also the sending of demonic spirits that will deceive mankind, get mankind to come and fight against God. If you believe it, there's going to be a, literally a war. On one side, it's going to be God, and the other side, it's going to be all the armies of the world fighting against God. And we think about it, and like, boy, that's suicidal. And that's exactly what it is, and that's really the purpose of this plague. Really, God is allowing demonic spirits to make people think that they can actually win. And that's what they come. So these people already hate God. They blaspheme the name of God. They wish God will be dead and get, to get rid of God. All that these demonic spirits are doing in the drying of the river, it just gives them the ability of doing what they really want to do. They're going to come against what we would consider a common reason and literally try to battle it out with God. That's the sixth seal. Seventh seal will be a great earthquake and great hail that we are told will, destroys, will destroy the cities of the world destroy the cities of the world. I've recently been listening to books and tapes, and, uh, and it, they, the one I'm listening to right now is about the War of Independence, and it talks about uh, cannons in those days. You'd, me- me- you'd measure the size of a cannon by the, the weight of a ball that you can fit inside of the cannon. So it'd be like a 9-pounder gun or a 12-pounder or 18-pounder. It means that's how much the, the, the ball of, of iron typically 
will be that will go inside of the gun that they're going to shoot. And the bigger the gun, the more damage it did. So a really big gun would be like maybe a 32-pounder. And that would really, that would really devastate anything that it hit. Well, uh, the, the word talent has different uh, measures, and that's the measure of the weight of the, of, the, uh, of the hail that's going to be falling on the cities of this world. But uh, the, the experts, or you know, all, all the experts agree, this, this describes a 100-pound hail ball, 100-pound hail ball. Imagine how much damage a, hail, a piece of hail that weighs 100 pounds and reaches terminal velocity will do when it lands. And, and the answer is it will destroy the cities of this world. The cities of this world will be destroyed as a result of this plague. All right. Chapter 17 and 18 go back to really describe uh, specifically the judgment of Babylon. We mentioned before Babylon represents the world system. And uh, we don't have time to go in any great detail into it. But it's worth considering, again, why God is judging Babylon, the world system. In chapter 17, uh, picking up at verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and walked and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So it talks here about the great harlot. Again, it's talking about Babylon. It's the same world system. It's interesting how it uses the word harlot to describe her and the word fornication to describe what it does and what it causes the rest of the world to do. And again, the reason for it is we were created to worship God and to be satisfied with God. Whenever, instead of worshiping God or being satisfied with, satisfied with God, you worship other things or try to be satisfied with other things apart of God, that's spiritual fornication. You're cheating on God. That's not what you were created. He was created to be your source of joy and satisfaction and the, uh, the, uh, the object of your worship. When you're giving that worship or trying to be satisfied with something else, that's spiritual fornication. Okay. Now, we should note uh, uh, to be fair, that it's really not possible. You're not, you're not going to get out of this world or out of this world system what God really is offering you. You were created in a particular way that only a relationship with God can truly satisfy you. People try to get things out of this world that will make them happy. Is uh, like if you ever put a puzzle together, and my wife will confess to it, you know, sometimes it's hard to find the right piece. And so you try a piece that that isn't quite the right piece, but you find it, you squish it, it'll fit. <laughs> All right. Well, but it doesn't fit quite right. And as you continue to put the puzzle together, you realize it doesn't really work. And, you know, the picture is messed up too. That's what I usually notice. And, uh, and that's going to be the truth. If you try to use this world to satisfy you, you're going to find it doesn't quite work. You know, you could, you could try to squish it in and feel like you're somehow getting some satisfaction, but you're not going to be really happy. And it's not going to last. Chapter 18, verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out from her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her 
plagues. My people. So now God is talking to his people, which yeah, I hope this room is full of, has a lot of them in it. And yet, the people of God are often tempted by the world to try to seek the same things that the world is offering to those who don't know God. And I, as I was studying this passage, that was one of the things I was most convicted of. When I'm, how many times, how much of my day am I trying to be satisfied with what the world has? instead of being satisfied by who God is and my relationship with him. And uh, James, James uh, talks about it. He says, you adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And he's talking there about exactly the same thing, a desire for pleasure, desire for the things that the world offers. God considers that immorality. That's, that's, God hates it. We as believers should not be seeking to be fulfilled with what the world has. We should seek to be fulfilled with what God has for us. Chapter 18 and verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore, and no craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore, and the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore, and the light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore, for your merchants, for the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all nations were deceived. So what this uh, angel is, is preaching about is really the, what God is doing here as a judgment. He's really taking the world away or the world system away. People may have things that they're trying to be happy with. Well, God isn't going to allow that to continue. Even uh, There's a verse in the scripture that says this, to those who have not even what they have will be taken away from them. They have not, well, they don't have the true riches of God. They don't have what has real value, which is a relationship with God. They have these fake relationships or fake uh, things that they're trying to be satisfied with. Well, God is going to take even that from them. Even the things that they think might give them happiness, God is not going to allow them to keep. He's going to take it away from them. I think about uh, uh, some of the things listed here. It talks about hobbies, musicians, all sorts of entertainments, craftsmen, I think of careers, trying to be satisfied with that. Uh, the last one kind of caught my attention. It says... Uh, and the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. I don't know how many of you have emails, but uh, or get junk emails. I get junk emails all the time. And interestingly, one of the biggest ones lately, one of the ones I see most advertising for on the internet, is will it help you find that special man or that special woman that you're missing in your life? A lot of people think that that's what's really going to satisfy them. And I'm thankful to God. He gave me a wonderful wife. But that's not... That's not what really you were made for. You were made for a relationship with God. You're only going to be truly satisfied with God. I mean, certainly there's nothing wrong with having a spouse. God created us with a design to have a relationship like that. But that's, even that's not going to be what makes you happy. The world, the world is chasing after all these things they think will make them happy. That will not. Only a relationship with God will satisfy. Chapter 19. I'm going to skip around here a little bit. 
starting at verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Verse 11. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean followed him on white horses now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with the rod of iron he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty god and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords verse 20 then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. I like that uh, first verse that we read in verse 7. Because it reminds me, while uh, it is a, a terrible time for those who continue to fight against God and refuse to worship him, it's also going to be a wonderful time for those who repent of their sins and are looking forward to him. It says the marriage of the Lamb has come. As wonderful as our life might now be knowing him, it's going to be better. It's going to be better. It talks about the consummation of the relationship. I think of uh, people that are engaged, you know, they're promised for each other, they might already be enjoying the relationship they can have, but a day is coming when they will be married, and then they will really have the relationship that they've been looking forward. And in the same way, our true union with Christ, I should say, I shouldn't use the word true, we are in union, we are in Christ, but yet they're really seeing him, really enjoying him, really seeing all of his blessings, experiencing all of his blessings is yet to come, but it's going to come at the same time. The source of woe to the world will be a source of joy to the believer. That's when we really are going to come to, to uh, marriage of the Lamb. And, and John the Apostle, when he hears this word, he just falls and starts worshipping the angel that's telling him that because he's so excited about that coming day, which he shouldn't be. The angel rebukes him for doing that. But uh, he, So here we see also Christ arrives, and uh, he arrives now in all his glory. Everybody is going to know this is the Christ when he comes. What I really noticed here is there's a lot of descriptions of Christ that talk of him as a judge. As a judge. He's coming to judge. He is the one who's been doing this all alone. It says he himself treads the winepress of the firstness and wrath of Almighty God. He's been the one judging the world all this time. And he's the one that will come to finish the job of judging the world. And I think of how he said this in his first coming, he says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's why he came the first time. And he made it very clear he did not come to judge the world or to punish. He came to save the world. Praise God 
that he first came to save us before coming to judge us for our sins. But here it's very clear he's coming to condemn the world. That's his second coming. He's now coming to judge and condemn those who refuse to believe and turn to God. And we see the uh, Antichrist and the false prophet uh, get cast into the lake of fire. Uh, the rest of mankind gets killed. By what? By the sword which proceeds out of his mouth, the word of God. The same word that warned them all along and they wouldn't believe it. That's what kills them. That's what kills them. And actually Jesus said that at the same time. It's the word that judges the world, that condemns the world of, of what the world is doing. The, the Bible does that. All right, uh, let's finish up. So we're actually skipping a thousand years here, which we talked briefly about last time. This is the millennium, the, the golden age of the world. Uh, and we're skipping over it to really the final judgment against sin in chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and, the, and death and hates delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and hates were cast into the lake of fire, this is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Why this additional judgment? Well, it's because of accountability. Every person will have to be accountable to God for their sins. The previous judgment was really God destroying the world system, judging the world system for rebelling against God. But every person will have to stand before God and be accountable for his or her own sins. And that's what happens here. Uh, we noticed uh, the books the books were written remember God is the perfect judge and he's going to have all the facts before him that's what the books describe here there will be a book about your life before God and God, God will if you would be able to peruse exactly through what you have done exactly through what you have thought exactly through what you have felt who you have worshipped in your heart and the Bible is very clear that nobody will be able to stand everybody will be condemned by what they have done. And, uh, and the final, final judgment here is to join Satan in what he has done. God didn't create hell for us people. He created hell for the devil, to punish the devil for what he has done. But those who persist in the lie of the devil, in not worshipping God, and worshipping and trying to be satisfied with other things, will end up with the same destiny. They'll join the devil in the lake of fire and being, experience the same punishment that God has reserved for the devil, the chief of which is death, being separated from God. That's really the main aspect of hell. You'll be, you were created to know God and be with God, but now forever you're going to be apart, separated from God in the lake of fire. Now, there's some good news here. I know it's been a, an hour of bad news, but there's a good news here because it talks about this thing called the book of life. So it's only those whose name were not written in the book of life that were cast into the lake of fire. There's a, a great verse in the Bible. Uh, one of my favorite is actually the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33. It says this, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way and live 
Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? It is not God's desire that you will be separated from him forever. His desire is that you will live, that you will have this relationship with him. And, uh, and, and we've, we've already mentioned it a number of times here. That way is through the Lord Jesus. Jesus said this. He said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. That's really a description of having your name written in the book of life. You have passed from death, from, from the list of those that are dead before God and condemned from their sins. You have been passed to the list of life, to those who will live with God forever. And you might ask, well, how is that possible? Isn't God supposed to be righteous? What about my sin? How does God judge my sin? Well, God has. It says in the Bible that he made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, Jesus accepted your sin. And on the cross, Jesus experienced the wrath of God for your sins. So that God can now be, declare you right, it says this, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. God can be just and justify you at the same time. And the evidence for that we have is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and then came back again. If, if our sins were still on him, if they were not paid in full, Jesus would not be able to rise from the dead. But now he rose from the dead and he's coming again. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great, great love for us. How thankful we are that you sent your son. You so loved the world that you sent your son to die for us so that by believing in him, we will not be condemned with the world, but be saved. Lord, we, we believe you. We believe that we were created to worship you and to know you. And that whenever we practice anything other than that, we are in sin against you. Help us be fully satisfied in you and fully love you for who you are and all the things you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.